Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Meet Us at the Water Cooler, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2014. In the first story of the evening, Brendan O'Donnell notes that it's hard enough to see co-workers every day try living with them on a boat. Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt is the traditional name of a container holding fresh water for a ship's crew. A water cooler, if you will. I learned this working on traditionally rigged sailboats, tall ships. Now, most of you, of us, leave our coworkers behind each day around five o'clock. Friends, tolerated nincompoops, overbearing managers, even the infrequent or often used copy room tryst, all fade into memory as we walk out the front door. This is a luxury absent from my profession. Crew costs are kept manageable by lodging us aboard ship. That's right, I live with my coworkers. After working together, excuse me, after working together for extremely long hours, suffering together the cold, wet, humidity, and labor of your average day of sailing, I get to curl up on a rack in a room filled with other crew. Snoring, snacking, (laughs) farting, (laughs) fucking. (sighs) This is normal for us. It is a very small community, something like 100 boats nationwide. Imagine your personal life permanently overlapping your professional sphere. You know that saying, you can't choose your family? Well, you sure can't choose your crew either. For example, a schooner crew in Key West is told they're getting a new member for a trip up the coast. The only information they are told is that this guy is a vegetarian poet. (laughs) What would you think? The next thing they know, a hairy, pale, 300-pound man in a sweat-soaked tie-dye tank top trudges aboard with way too much baggage. They certainly did not pick this guy. What on earth must they be thinking? That guy? That was me, like six years ago. One does not pick their family. Take Key West, where somewhere between two and five tall ships can be found at any time. We all know each other, And like any other group of people who work together all day in difficult situations, we also don't really bother finding other social outlets. Those who sweat together also get pissed drunk and look for sex and fun together. One fascinating side effect is that most of the time, the constant friction of living cheek by jowl wears off the barbs of individual personalities. Everyone is more or less committed to the success of the work and the social environment. So you try to overlook petty irritations. Most of the time. Most everybody. There are always exceptions, like Becky. (laughs) 
Becky was on such and such a boat, and one of her students suggested, one of her student evaluations suggested she kill herself. Becky dropped the main peak halyard for no apparent reason in the middle of a sail and nearly killed like 37 tourists. I heard that Becky will sleep with you after one shot of tequila and move into your bunk the next morning. <laughs> Becky is such a living fuck up. Becky is coming to Key West to work on our boat. We talk, we gossip. Practically everyone in the industry knows everyone else through one remove or two, and almost everyone knows something embarrassing about you, even if you have never met. Which should make an intelligent person treat gossip as what it is and give someone the benefit of the doubt. This is what the Key West sailors did for Becky for all of six hours. <laughs> Within the first day of work, she apparently mixed a pot of two-part epoxy paint and set a small fire <laughs> and glued the paint to the deck. Not exactly an auspicious start. Sadly, Becky became the center of schooner town gossip as everyone bitched about the newest exploits of the most disliked sailor in town. Not fun for her. Because you have to remember that not only are all schooner bums co-workers, but we comprise 98% of our total social relationships. <laughs> schooner bums are creatures of habit, and we congregate wherever the booze is cheapest. Despite never telling her where we were, Becky always found us and inevitably interrupted the Becky bitch fest of the day. <laughs> Not only a menace at work, Becky also caused problems in the schooner social sphere. One Thursday, many of the boat crews were cross-dressed at a conservative Irish pub in Key West, freaking out the regulars with our attire. Suddenly, Becky is in the mix, making out with a girl who moved to Key West to follow a guy she had a three-night fling with in Baltimore. No one is against ladies making out, but Becky was dating a well-known male sailor long distance. The girl she was kissing was at the party with the guy she'd followed from Baltimore, and the entire episode was clearly designed in Becky's mind to create attention and drama. Finally, I present the scene. Storm, wind, rain had settled over Key West and the tourists were not buying tickets. We call it a rum squall, which is a pretty thin excuse to call off work for the entire day and find something to do to support our drinking habits. Five of us were warming up for hours of day drinking with a few beers on the deck of one of our vessels when someone suggested we go across island to the only movie theater in paradise and watch The Mist by Stephen King. This was quickly agreed upon, especially as discreet movie drinking would only enhance the horror. We gathered our coats, bags, beverages, and whatnot and headed out to the parking deck where one of our number had stashed her car. During the 10-minute walk to the car, we discussed local issues. I sure as shit hope Becky doesn't find us. <laughs> I can't handle her. Did you see how she broke up what's her name and what's his name? Can't someone please fire her? The problem is that despite her overwhelming incompetence, there were enough people trying hard enough to prevent really bad things from happening aboard ship that Becky was shielded from true consequences. 
Also, it is difficult for anyone in Key West to actually get fired. <laughs> that said, as the five of us joyously strolled down the street, Becky appeared from an alley 200 yards in front of us. <laughs> There's not much time. I quickly asked my four companions, does any of you guys actually want her to come along with us? Dead silence. You know how when you're a kid, your parents always tell you to tell the truth? It's better to be honest, right? Right? I chose to act. I stepped in front of Becky, and the others rushed around her towards the car. I looked her in the eyes. Becky, we took a vote, and the group has decided that we do not want you to hang out with us today. She did not respond. I walked away and she fled, crying towards the waterfront. I ran to rejoin the group. They asked what I said. I told them. You didn't have to tell her. We're only going to a movie. It's not like we'll actually have to talk to her. I defended myself. Like, if I, was, if I wasn't wanted in a social situation, I would want to know, guys. And aren't you the same group of people who just spent the last 30 minutes bitching about her? God, now we have to put up with her while she's upset forever. What a dick move, Brendan. We got to the car, had our horror movie, and eventually made it back to the boats. She was upset for weeks and eventually left Key West early. So, gossip or the truth? What say you? Next, a temp job in Milwaukee made Daniel Stewart think about what is permanent and what is temporary in life. Now, I should mention up front that I'm going to be talking about working for an MOB company, but it means something a little different than, the normal, than what you might normally think an MOB company would mean. And I do want to emphasize that I directly participated in none of the actual crimes that this company committed. Um, <clears throat> but um, the best place to start, to start my tale is actually in talking about the sidewalks of Milwaukee. Uh, this was some years ago when I was in Milwaukee. It was my first time in the city. I spent a few months there. And I was actually, I grew incredibly impressed by the sidewalks of Milwaukee. I don't know if they're still the same, I hope so. But they struck me as being exceptionally nice sidewalks. And what I especially noticed about the sidewalks was, you know, if you, you can tell the parts of the sidewalks that have been patched. You know, the rectangles are, are different colors and they're new. Well, in these sections, in, this, in these sidewalks in Milwaukee that have been patched, there were markers on either end, the beginning and the end of the patches of these new sections of sidewalk. And they were markers that had little names, like little brands that people had pressed into the concrete. And I saw these everywhere. So I asked somebody who'd lived in Milwaukee for a number of years, what's the deal with the names in the concrete? I mean, these are not like you know, people pressing their hands in or, their, or cat prints. These are names. And he said, well, in Milwaukee, when people replace the sidewalk, they mark it on both ends with their names. So you can tell who did it. And that struck me as being this really 
I mean, when you think about something signed, you think art, buildings, stadiums. You don't really think sidewalks. And it struck me as being just a really cool thing that somebody would want everybody to know, I did this sidewalk. It's not like it's, not like it's, a, it's like this super thing, but it's like I did this sidewalk. And it's a good sidewalk. And I'm kind of proud of it. So I was in Milwaukee because this was a couple of years after college. And I'd worked my first sort of post-college job. And that was in Massachusetts. And then I'd gone up to Maine for a few months for a program up there at this little program. And at this little program, I met a girl. And after the program was done, she was going to be going to Milwaukee for a little while. So I was just out, just out of college. I, I was rootless. I could go where I wanted. So I decided I'll just go to Milwaukee too. It, it's just, it'll just be for a little while. It'll be fun. Well, you know, so I'm in Milwaukee and I need to work. And I'm just there temporarily, so I need temporary work. So where do you go? You go to a temp agency. So I went to Kelly Services. Clerical work, and I became a Kelly girl. <laughs> and, and they assigned me a job that was about 45 minutes walk from the way, where I was staying. That's why I was looking at all the sidewalks all the time. I was just walking around the city. <laughs> now, I suspect that a fair number of you have probably worked a temp gig at some point. So you probably have some idea, but for those of you who have never worked as a temp, as a temp in an office, it, it generally goes like this, that you're assigned the things that people who are actually like real employees of the office don't want to do. <laughs> They're the boring things. You know, so you're, you're, you're photocopying, you're stapling, you're stuffing envelopes. Um, a bad temp job is where you end up in the photocopy room at a folding table for a week, and the, the, the fluorescent lights are buzzing above you, they're sort of green, and, some, and you're just surrounded by paper, and nobody talks to you. Um, I read a description in a story once where someone was describing a job, and they said, well, the hours are good, although the actual minutes are bad. I mean, that's a, that's a bad temp job. But in Milwaukee, they sent me to one that was pretty nice. Oh, by the way, I, I was trying to think of something that I could make sure that you left here with, because I mean, I appreciate you coming out to listen to, all the, you know, to us tell these stories. So I wanted to make sure that even if you don't remember anything else that I say tonight, that you'll remember this one thing, this one helpful hint. If you ever have to, to seal a lot of envelopes, like hundreds of envelopes, water doesn't work. Use a glue stick. Okay? <laughs> Use a glue stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the task that I was assigned, the, the job that I got in Milwaukee from Kelly was, by, I mean, the, by the very modest standards of temp service, it was a real nice, it was a nice gig. You know, I had my own desk, I had my own workstation, it was a little cubicle, I had my own telephone, and it was sweet. There was one minor drawback that I realized after a couple of days of being there, which was, well, the company, I should explain. MOB, Medical Office Buildings. <laughs> if you've ever been to, like, and when you go to the dentist, when you go to, like, you know, the foot doctor, when you go to take medical tests, when, they, when you see those smaller buildings where they have all these things, those are medical office buildings. And the company that I was assigned to had about 40 people. And this is what they did. They didn't design them. They didn't build them. They just sort of coordinated the whole thing. And 
the people were nice, and the company was essentially, I discovered, they were crooks. <laughs> My first clue was that I discovered that most of the people who worked at this company, like pretty much all the secretaries and a bunch of the other sort of professional positions, they'd all been fired about a month before. I was working with all the replacements. They hadn't been there much longer than me as the temp. So I was faced with this semi-dilemma where, you know, I'm working for a company that's really run by crooks because they were, I discovered that one of the main things they seemed to be doing now was figuring out why not to pay the people they owed money to. Architects, contractors, they, had, they just decided not to pay them because then they, get to, they got to keep the money. You know, that was this sort of, their sort of business strategy was keeping the money. <laughs> so, so um, I had this sort of moral, ethical dilemma, you know, of working, I was working for this company that was engaged in some pretty shady things, but they also had really liberal use of, for making like personal telephone calls. <laughs> so, I mean, I was only a temp, so I stayed. You know, of course, it's, it's putting, I, when you're a temp, that's not really a decision. You know, did I, men I mentioned I had my own cubicle and everything. You know, so it was nice. Now, I learned a lot about the, about the background of the company from one particular woman who was their, sort of their, one of their staff architects. She sort of gave me the skinny on a lot, a lot of what was going on. Um, and I have to say that in looking back, I understand her position a lot better than I did then, just in my 20s. She had only been working for the company for about six months. And she had come over from being a tenured full professor at a very good university. And they had lured her over. She told me this over many sessions. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I was, I guess if you'd pay your therapist like $8 an hour, then you could sort of have a temp. But, <laughs> Um, they lured her over by offering her, I mean, she was, I think, probably in her mid to late 50s. She'd been working as a professor for a long time. It was quite monotonous, you know, after a while. So she was looking for variety. She was looking for maybe a little adventure. And they offered to triple her salary. So she came over. And she was incredibly unhappy because she saw what the company did, and she'd lived through pretty much everybody being fired and replaced. And what I understand now was that she had left a, an, a, a job that was as permanent as you, as you can get in this country and come over to a company that she could see was not gonna be around very long because like not paying people was not a really viable long-term business strategy. <laughs> so she was going sort of from, I mean, she was telling the temp about her losing her permanent position, sort of going into the temporary world very soon herself. And what I didn't, didn't understand at all then and understand quite well now, is that when you leave a tenured position at a university, it's a one-way street. You can't go back. So as part of her telling me, me this, and I think, I mean, I didn't understand her motivations entirely, but I was at that point where, you know, when you're in your mid-20s, you've been out of college for a while, you start to have these, these visions of grad school, law school sort of floating through your head. And I mentioned this, and it became her mission that I should apply to grad school. As a matter of fact, she, she actually made it part of my official temp duties <laughs> to apply for grad school, which, which makes sense. I mean, if you worked for a temp, you understand how this works. That I'm an, at one of my temp assignments elsewhere, 
Uh, one of the other secretaries had on her bag, she had this uh, like bumper sticker that said, um, Jesus is coming. Quick, look busy. Because that's sort of your mission as a temp, is that if you look busy, then you're, everything, is, everything is fine, you know, everything is moving. So, so she made it one, I mean, I did real work, but she also made it part of my workflow that I would apply to grad school, which I did. And that, so then when I left, I moved on to grad school. And the thing is that I really didn't think much about that time in Milwaukee until I'd finished grad school, like uh, far too many years later. <laughs> when I was, well, there's a thing about temp assignments. You get te you, when you get a temp assignment, you, some of them are temp assignments, or some of them are temp to perm, which means that you're working as a temp, but you're hoping for a permanent position. The, the position will become permanent, and if you work out, you'll become a permanent part of that company. And it began to occur to me as I was going to grad school, you know, always working for the next thing, you know, because you go to grad school so you can go, like, I wanted to teach at college. And then you take, when, after you get out of grad school, you go and you teach and you do all these little things because you're always thinking about the future. And it occurred to me around this time that what I was doing was I was still sort of being a temp, looking for that temp to perm assignment. You know, I'd be on, I'd be going from the train to the trolley in between teaching at two or maybe even three different places in, in one day. All these little temporary assignments to build for that next thing. You know, it's all about the future, right? You're all, I, I, was, I was always thinking about the future. Well, when I started always thinking about the future, I was in my mid-20s, and I was a lot closer to 40 now than I was to my mid-20s. And I was still just working everything for the future. So I'd reached that age where, the, where I began to realize that, you know, I've been working for the future, but where do you live? Where's your life? If you, I mean, sure, you have your hopes, but if everything you're doing is you're saying, I'm only doing this now, even though it's sort of horrible, because it's going to lead to something better. And then when I'm doing that something that's a little bit better, well, I'm... That's not much better, but it's still a little bit horrible. But, you know, <laughs> eventually it'll lead to something maybe a little better. Maybe it won't, but, but, you know, you just keep sort of moving these little temporary assignments. And one, when I was writing my dissertation, I came across this line that stuck with me from one of the people I was writing about. And he, when he wrote about how he judged his, the use of his time and his whole life, the one saying he kept in mind, which he picked up from his father, was time is life in installments. And um, the writer Annie Dillard, she had a similar sentiment when she said, how you spend your hours is how you spend your days. So like how you, what, what I'm doing every day, thinking it's going to lead to my real life, this thing that I'm doing, it is my real life. It is my life. I, I can't just think about it as temporary anymore. It's time to go perm. <laughs> so that's why we moved to this area. And who's we? Well, that girl I followed to Milwaukee. <laughs> we, went, we went perm. <laughs> and, you know, I think about, 
that time in Milwaukee now, now that I understand things a lot better, now that I'm closer in age to that woman who helped me out in ways that I never thanked her for. You know, nothing in life lasts forever. Medical office buildings, sidewalks. You know, I, I'm not going to last forever. You know, it's sad to say. <laughs> but there is something still appealing about the guys who put their stamps in those sidewalks. There's literally concrete. They're literally putting their name in there and saying, it's only a sidewalk. But, I'm pretty, but I, I think I did a pretty good job. I think I did okay on this thing. Because the thing is, it doesn't have to be permanent because nothing is entirely permanent. But that doesn't mean that life is temporary. Thanks very much. In the next story, Jen Cameron tells of how the culture of Southern gossip makes for an interesting work setting. I'll never forget Sunday morning at the First Baptist Church in Brenham, the church where I learned about Good Samaritans, the Golden Rule, and the ill effects of gossip. Young Jen, carrying my Bible, preaching to the heretics, would often quote, if I heard someone disparaging another, or just saying shit, which I say now, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Or, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in a spirit, in spirit keeps the thing covered. Thank you. And lastly, from Proverbs, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And so it is this, in this spirit that I continue with my reading. And yet church is where I first learned of the vital and informal communication channel known as the water cooler, more like the Baptist punch bowl in this instance. I discovered quite early the power that the gaggle of church ladies that they held, their curation and dissemination of highly personal details of every congregant was so much powerful than the deacons. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. The sway that these de facto influencers held was a long game, gathering and trading in the secrets and weaknesses of all who were out of hearing range. I recall sitting in a pew with my grandmother, watching as the latecomer congregants made their way into the sanctuary. Oh, hello, Adele! Lois! Nice to see you, Leona. Each of these greetings punctuated by a subtle lean and whisper divulging information about each of these women that they would probably prefer remain a secret. Adele's daughter was just in the banner press last week, had a little trouble with the police. Drunk driving. <laughs> oh, hi, Rachel. You look wonderful. She just had her stomach stapled. Lost a lot of weight. The front row of the choir could hear that, and I was mortified. These were my first lessons in the water cooler. 
Every Christmas, I had to load into the car with mom and grandmother and my Aunt Phyllis. We all drove all over town looking at the lights of our neighbors, mom or grandmother chiming in at every address, talking about the inhabitants of the home, who they were married to or divorcing, names of their children, anything they knew, just filling their collective coffers with mind-numbing details about no one I would ever meet or care to. For them, it was sport. I stopped coming home for Christmas well over a decade ago, partially to avoid the painstaking practice of this tradition, billed as a cheerful holiday ride, but taking everyone down with us. And that's what I really want to talk about today, the water cooler, the church pew, the Southern Baptist punch bowl, whatever you call it. It's a big topic. It's pervasive. Because at the end of the day, don't we just want to best understand each other in a way that allows us to better understand ourselves, the human condition? Don't we want to be understood as well? And I want to break this down into two aspects, Marta. What the water cooler should be, essentially the act of building trust informally through these shared stories, these ad hoc inquiries and whatnot, and then the cashing in on that trust for more self-centered gains, known as gossiping. In communication theory, the water cooler effect is a, is a phenomenon that is intrinsic to building these relationships, particularly in an organizational setting. And these relationships are, are crucial to effective functioning of an organization. And, it, and it's because we come together from such diverse backgrounds and you know, different work experiences and really different ways of gathering meaning from this symbolic code that we call language. Um, and in high-paced work settings where teamwork and the ability to tackle a problem collectively is crucial, it's, it's really it's important to know your colleagues. I'm, every weekday morning, I sit at a table with my team, my coworkers. We set the course for the day, for the week, talk about challenges with our clients, driving new business. Um, and more importantly, we shoot the shit. How was your weekend? How's your husband? How much did you drink? Did you see the latest episode of Breaking Bad? It's this type of communique that builds trust. It allows us to relate to each other on these more human terms. And from casual conversation, from this spontaneous kind of brainstorming, we polish our informal channels so that when we get into the work setting, we can be polished and function as a team and finish each other's sentences in the more formal setting. We can work more collaboratively because we know and trust each other more. We're more likely to brainstorm, share knowledge on the fly because we're constantly checking in with one another. It's this peer-to-peer -peer mechanism that happens and it happens because of proximity. It happens, I'm not telling you all in anything you don't know, but it, it happens. We strengthen our bonds. But it's this type of informal sharing that can sometimes bite you in the ass because of the higher stakes in the workplace, competition for promotion, for attention, competing with Marta and Chris and Dan all the time for that. Um, the more you share, really, is the, the more there's to be used against you. And so for years, I was very secretive. Uh, fearing that everyone knew my business, I took great pains to keep my private life private. I suppose my preference for a shorter haircut and my love of the company of women. 
was a driver for living in this sort of duality, privacy, disclosure. And my biggest fear was being found out. And going back to that time when I was sitting on the, the pew with my grandmother, it was being found out that I was not nearly a good enough Christian um, and that I was not like the others. Growing up as I did, I lived in a water cooler. In fact, I, I kind of swam in it. It felt more like an aquarium. Um, this conversational currency was um, highly personal in nature. And here's the, here's the sticky point about gossip. We're talking about people who aren't here. We're sharing information about their character in their absence. And that's sort of where the, the water cooler breaks down and begins to get poisoned. Because it's the, it's the intent. It's when something is so, I don't know, it's, it's when, when you're in the South, it's something that's just so practiced and we're just culturally, we're just talking about each other. We're just looking, there's something new to see. There's, who's that walking into my restaurant? And you kind of want to talk about that with the other people at your table. And um, I, I really didn't have any idea how entrenched this was in, in my life until um, it was witnessed by my lovely Elon, who I, I dared to bring her home to Texas early on in our relationship and sort of uh, had her bear witness to this phenomenon of Southern gossip culture. And so we, we walk into this place, the, uh, the airport, it was the new locale of the, the hot 50s diner where Houston businessmen would fly in on their airplanes and get a burger just for shits and burning fuel and money and because I can. And uh, Brenham, where I'm from, it's, it's known for its homemade vanilla ice cream. Uh, it's also known for a catchphrase where the cows think it's heaven. And um, in fact, the cows are even believers in Brenham. It's very pious. And I kind of overdeveloped this sense of paranoia and self-centeredness because seriously, when you walk into a room in Brenham, everyone is talking about you. I'm not kidding. Elon bore witness to this. That's just how we do here. So I take Elon out to this diner. We walk in and you witness this sort of subtle shift of heads and this low murmur. Yeah, and so it begins, this sort of round robin of visitors begin to actually, as we get seated, they come to our table and want to check in with my grandmother, my aunt, my mother are there, Elon is there. Well, hello, Midge, it is so nice to see you. Hi, Midge. I heard you were in the hospital. You look so good. How are you doing? So nice to see you out and about. And who is this you're with? With that short hair. <laughs> All of these table visitors with their greetings were, are actually just trying to glean their own information for their missions to go back to the table to disclose, to share this great currency of information. As soon as they leave the table, my grandmother, my aunt, my mother, oh, well, now do you know who that was? She is Chloe's daughter, Miss Gascamp, and she just, her son was so drunk at the Willie Nelson concert. 
it's that sort of information mining for this the purpose of uh, power, really, that I believe that corrupts and sort of undermines this trust. That in like in its perfect vision, the water cooler is this place to build trust, um, but you begin to poison the water cooler when you share information about those absent from your company. And so building these relationships in the workplace is, is really key to an effective and thriving organization. And for too long, I sort of feared the adverse effects of this, this sort of culture of sharing personal details, this culture of gossip and being very careful and measured in my work settings and for fear that this information was gonna be used against me, never in a court of law, I hope, but in a way that was hurtful. And I'm, I'm learning to trust and be trusted in my new work family. Thank you all for showing up to support me. Um, and I, I embrace that and I, I, I value that. And it's, it's really all about the, the sort of the intent of this building of uh, relationship and culture and being very mindful and careful to not uh, just mine information for the sake of using it as currency and using it to, I don't know, just kind of get a leg up in, in your, I don't know, hierarchy of things, something. Anyway, novels could be written about the stuff of Southern gossip, and so I, I think that my first novel will be called Yes, I Had My Stomach Stapled Midge, Now Mind Your Own Damn Business. <laughs> Brett Nichols shares in the next story that when you're a cop, you learn a lot of lessons about the difference between humanity and being human. I'm a retired cop. As such, when this gets brought up in a crowd, I'm asked a few staple questions. One of those is how fast do I have to be going before I get pulled over? The other one is how many donuts do you eat in a shift? And I'm always asked to tell a story. Do you have any good cop stories? And I do. I have a ton of them. And I'll tell, I always tell the good ones. I tell the ones that are exciting and the ones that are something straight off of an episode of Cops. But the first one that always comes to mind, I've never told in public before tonight. I'm going to share that with you now. It was November and unseasonably cold. I was on the last shift of my work week before four days off, and I had huge plans. Now, you got to understand there's an unwritten rule in law enforcement. There are certain words that you never say or else your shift is completely fucked. One of those words is, I'm going to lunch. <laughs> one, of those, one of those phrases is, it's almost the end of the shift. And the other, other word is, boy, it's quiet. The other phrase is, boy, it's quiet. <laughs> well, on this particular day, it was quiet. It was a really slow shift. It was coming to an end, and I was ready to go home. I was out in Gron, if you're familiar with the area. I was out in Gron, I was pointing north, heading back to the shop, as we call it, when what happens? Over the radio come the loud, blaring emergency alert tone. They sound something like this. Beep, boop, beep, 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 Shit. <laughs> County and state units, prepare for a poll. We have a PIA, a personal injury accident. Jesus Christ, don't let it be by me, don't let it be by me, don't let it, well, it was. I was actually two miles away from it. <laughs> Dispatcher calls out the poll. 7130, what's your location? 
Regrettably, I gave them my real location, not the 30 miles away where I wished to God that I'd have been at the time. And of course, as fate would have it, I was dispatched to the call. I flipped on my siren, and on the way there, I kind of tried to convince myself that, look, I'm close. It's not going to take me long to get there. This is probably going to be nothing like most of them end up being, fortunately. As I rounded the final curve, the only evidence I could see of the reported crash was a man sitting on the side of the highway. My siren pitched down to a slow silence, and the tired engine of my state police Blue Crown Victoria quickly quieted as I pulled to a stop. I remember it was exactly 2.58 when I pulled up, having looked at my dashboard clock, hoping this report would not take me past the end of my 4 o'clock shift. It's funny the things that you remember when you get into a crisis. I don't even remember what day it was, but I remember what time it was when I looked at my clock. November snow was falling lightly, and the afternoon temperature had dropped la rapidly over the past couple of hours, so the damp roads were starting to freeze over. As the peaking sun shone down, the highway looked as though there were millions of tiny diamonds crusted about on the highway. And slightly confused, I approached a man sitting on the shoulder of the road. I was dispatched to a personal injury accident, but I saw no sign of the black pickup truck that was supposed to be there, and this guy, who I'm presuming was the driver, was sitting upright. He was clearly conscious. He was clearly breathing, and I saw no injuries on him. Now, the guy was probably in his 40s. He had shoulder-length black hair, which was matted and appeared to be damp and a little bit dirty. And the only sign that I saw that something was wrong was his heavy blue plaid jacket, torn blue jeans, and his boots were all soaking wet and covered in mud. I made my way over to him, and as I got closer, I immediately smelled the alcohol. Now, this wasn't a surprise. He smelled like a bar room after an hours-old fight where broken bottles still lay on the floor, emitting an odor of dirt, skunky beer, and old whiskey. So where's your truck, I asked him. He said nothing to me, but he pointed across the street to the other bank. I looked a little bit closer at him, and as I studied him a little bit more, I saw chunks of vomit that were hanging off of his short but disheveled beard, kind of running down his shirt and onto his pants a little bit. I turned away from him, a little bit disgusted, and I looked across the road, and I did see tire tracks that disappeared over a steep embankment on the other side. Are you hurt? I asked him. I was a little bit irritated. I wanted to go home. We take on this oath when we come into this job. We're going to help people. We have compassion. We care. And I did care. I gave a shit about people when I was in this job. But we're human beings. We want to go home. We have plans. We have things that we want to do. And this guy wasn't helping me get there. I was frustrated. The man just stared at the other bank. Jesus Christ, what's with this guy? Fuck it, stay here, I told him. I ran across the empty highway to the bank on the other side, and there in the swamp at the bottom of the bank was his crashed truck. It was buried. It was upside down in thick black mud, and all that was showing was the dirty, rusted, and gray undercarriage with the four tires were still kind of spinning leisurely as though they were cooling down after a big race. Then suddenly, any sounds that were once associated with the highway, the birds, the woods surrounding me, they were all suddenly silenced. The trees fell perfectly still, and while it seemed as though the wind instantly faded away, a chill like ice being drawn down my back overtook me. All my focus was drawn. It was complete tunnel vision to a red patch that was floating next to the truck. Was there anyone else with you? I shouted at the guy who was now laying down in the dry, brown, late-fall grass on the opposite bank. As before, he made no effort to answer or even acknowledge my question. He simply looked into the sky as though he was waiting for it to swallow him up. I attempted to convince myself that the red patch was just simply a coat or something that had fallen out of the overturned truck, but I was anxious. 
I began to make my way down the slippery hill and to the partially submerged vehicle, but almost immediately I lost my footing. It was slippery. I slid down the wet, thick mud, and it reminded me when I took my kids to the Great Wolf Lodge, kind of going down that slide. You just can't stop yourself. There's no help. You just got to get yourself down to the bottom and hope for the best. Soon as I got down there, my legs sunk knee-deep into the, into the mud. I'm sure I probably swore, but I don't remember very much other than the grim realization that while the red patch was indeed a coat, I saw that there was a body attached to it. It was a small body. With my next step, I quickly sank up to my waist and then to my shoulders. Why the fuck is this so deep? I'm sure the water was really cold, but I don't remember that part of it. I remember focusing on the coat, hoping that it would call for help, hoping that it would move, roll, swim to me, swim out of the water, something, anything, but it didn't. I remember the smell of wet, the smell of dirt, of moss, of fish. I could feel the water and pudding like mud beginning to patiently sleep into my once waterproof work boots. <laughs> waterproof my ass. My uniform was getting soaked, adding to what seemed like 100 pounds to the weight that I was already carrying. I was exhausted already. And while the floating red mass appeared to be only about 10 feet away, it may as well have been 100 feet away as slowly as I was moving. It was kind of like those dreams that you have where you're running away from something, but you're going in slow motion and you can't seem to get away. But finally I made it. I grabbed the collar of that red mud-stained sweatshirt and I turned over the mass to find it to be a small boy, no more than six or seven years old. He was completely covered in mud, and his features were barely distinguishable. I frantically cleared the boy's face away, swiping downward, and I unintentionally uncovered the left breast of his sweatshirt. And I saw the word Tommy, number 36, and a small soccer ball that was embroidered in yellow. God, with what seemed to be the greatest focus I could ever muster up, I listened for any sign of breath, anything. And all of those things that were quiet before the birds, the trees, the sound of traffic, all of a sudden, all of that was echoing in my ears, and it's all I could hear. I could hear the water with every small movement. What I couldn't hear was any breath. But as I looked down, I did see little bubbles coming out of the corner of Tommy's mouth. That was a sign that he was getting some kind of breath. He was breathing in, and he was breathing out. Look, listen, and feel. Jesus Christ, look, listen, and feel. I thought, what am I thinking? I tilted his head back as best as I could while supporting his body in the water. And mud dribbled from both corners of his, of his mouth, and I opened it to clear the airway as best as I could. I found it. It was filled with mud. It was filled with small weeds. Frantic, and I was on the verge of panic. I put my index finger in his mouth, and I was doing what I could to clear it out. And it, but the stuff was acting like a steel fortress. It was blocking all the air that was trying to get in. Three paramedics appeared on the crest above me, and it was a very welcome sight. And holding tight to Tommy, I, I began talking to him, telling him anything I could think of, telling him about my day. I was telling him about the tour of the police car that I was going to give him and joking with him about how we'd have to clean the mud off him because I didn't want my seats to get dirty. I trudged once more through the murky waters, which mercifully at this time seemed to sense my urgency. It felt as though they released their urge, their once tight grasp on my boots below the surface, and I was able to quickly reach the bank. I grabbed a bright yellow nylon rope that was thrown down to me by the paramedics and I attempted to climb to the top. Number 36 was in my right hand. His head was kind of laying, a little bit cocked and a little bit uncomfortable on my right shoulder. And the journey seemed to take forever. The rope was in my left hand. I heard a small boy from Tommy the first time that I slipped and fell back to the bottom of the steep, muddy, and slippery bank. Don't swear. Don't swear. Don't swear. You're holding a child. Don't swear. I kept thinking to myself. Tommy's head nodded slightly as he attempted to gasp whatever samples of air that he could, and I encouraged him, demanded that he continue to breathe. 
His fists were clenched in fear and probably pain. His left hand is gripping tightly to the radio that I had on my left microphone, on my left lapel, on my shoulder. His other hand was kind of dragging behind us, but I could see the white through the mud that covered it up as I looked behind me. His eyes were still closed. On my second attempt at climbing the bank and close to the top, I looked down at number 36 and I heard a faint whine. At first, that gave me some hope because, man, maybe he's coming too. Maybe I'm going to be able to talk to him. But then his fist relaxed. I couldn't feel the pull on my left shoulder anymore, and his head rested a lot more comfortably on my right shoulder. And he was very calm. He seemed to sleep as though nothing tragic had happened, but it was just a long, exhausting journey for him. He couldn't fight off the watery molasses that clogged his throat anymore. Back on the banks, the paramedics gently took Tommy from me, and I looked down at my once crisp, clean blue uniform. I was so proud every day to put that uniform on, but now it was black. It was covered in mud. My badge, it shone so brightly polished and proudly bearing the number 711, was now dull. It was caked with thick swamp water. My boots, who were once clean and polished to a glass mirror-like finish, were now caked in mud, and they squeaked and sloshed as I walked across the highway back to the silent stranger sitting on the bank. This walk seemed to take forever. I could feel my heart in my throat, my stomach churning as I got closer to the man. His back was now turned to the scene, and he was sitting up. Was he drunk? Probably. But I still felt guilt that I had thought so badly of this guy for my own selfish reasons because I just fucking wanted to go home. I never considered what this guy had gone through, you know? I yelled at the man who was likely in shock from what had happened, from what he had seen, and ultimately from what he had done. What kind of cop would I become? What happened to my compassion? I slowly drew closer, dreading that I was about to do the absolute single worst job in law enforcement, and that's to tell a parent that their child had died. I was assuming that it was his son. As I walked up behind him, it was then that the man spoke to me for the first time. He never looked at me. And the five words that he said to me, I will never forget. He said, am I going to jail? Thank you. Next, Elon Cameron's self-discovery quickly becomes the subject of office chatter. So the water cooler is the punctuation mark for the most boring of office jobs. The endless run-on sentence of weekdays. It is a gathering place, the crossroads of otherwise cubicle-bound workaday living. I recall distinctly riding the morning waves of social check-ins and awaiting the more furtive glances of someone who had something to dish. I would get to work, update my voicemail, get a pile of copying and filing together, and deposit it carefully at my friend's desk who was at the most remote location. No one ever visited her office. And then I would stand in the kitchen, nearly invisible for as long as possible, gathering social data and ignoring the drudgery of other people's weekend plans. The executives would breeze in and everyone would scatter like mice. Then slowly, the accumulation would regroup. It was a fascinating and curious to observe. I was always the jovial, chubby girl. You know, the one who organizes the holiday party trivia game. That was exactly 
the space that I occupied at the social service agency where I worked for nearly four years. It was a fancy adoption agency, a place where in the middle of the last century, dozens of Hollywood royalty got their babies. When I worked there, the agency had undergone some significant changes and necessary changes working to provide more services to a broader scope with better politics. I'm glad to say that I was a part of those changes. The office employed 53 people, two of them male. Most of the affluent, middle-aged white ladies I worked with, now the social workers were slightly younger, but still a very fancy demographic. Overall, and I had formed one single alliance with the graphic designer. She was my friend at work. Both of us loved to cook, and we were nerdishly into efficiency. In all the jobs I'd had up to this point, and I counted, this was my 13th job, I had made myself indispensable or irreplace irreplaceable. I was useful and helpful and cheerly, cheery to the hilt, but something happened after the first three years. While I had been important and useful in creating programs and developing systems that streamlined the entire agency's workload, I was beginning to undergo some kind of internal shift. I was finally realizing that I was queer. And frankly, it was fucking awesome. <laughs> so sure, for the first three years I'd worked there, I'd poured myself into making the whole agency run better. I'd felt my personal duty to offer help to the inner workings of any department that would have me as run such an audit. I was a super assistant. I would run support for the fax machine, the copier, general computer troubleshooting, you name it. I was a real gal Friday, and I loved it. But meanwhile, I kind of hated my life. I was bored and lonely and sad, and I felt that I was on the outside of everything. I felt like I could easily just lift right out, and no one would notice. In my early coming out, I started to care about my life more than my job. There was a growing community of queers and opportunity that I was way more interested in. This was my coming of age. I was an early 20-something, and I didn't want to miss it for a team-building meeting that I'd just be expected to refresh the snack table at. So more than realizing I was queer or finding my community of people, something wild began to happen. I felt like I was leading a secret life. I'd started working at the agency with a boyfriend, and I'd never bothered updating anyone. My life was exploding with delights from 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday. I maintained a square silence. Until August. Now some of you know what see you in August means. It was the 1990s and the Michigan Women's Music Festival was a somewhat magical place where thousands of mostly queer women of all ages for a week in mid-Michigan somewhere near heart would unite. Mostly very wild queer things happened there. Apparently the locals call it Camp Lick Lick. <laughs> 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 
On over 1,000 acres of privately held land, hundreds of famous and semi-famous female musicians would come and play music. It still happens. There's everything from punk to folk, drum circles and dance parties. There are even storytelling events and poetry slams. There are campgrounds for disabled folks, old folks, for the BDSM community, for vanilla dykes, for swingers. Anything that you can imagine had its own distinct identity in this wonderland. This was when I was introduced to the world of all that was possible in being a queer woman. It was also the year that I was introduced to the rift between feminist separatists and transgendered women, which is why I've never gone back. But that year was 1997. I took a whole week of work off, and I was going to be camping with my friend Carolyn. She was a basketball dyke. She knew people. And I took the whole time to something new. Now, I was recently newly out in a somewhat timid way. I was wonderstruck at the world of dating women. I'd identified personally and most secretly as queer from an early age, and all of my early sexual encounters were with other girls. But I tried to play along. I really gave it the college try. So at the Michigan Women's let me specifically explain to you that it is women spelled with a Y, so as to avoid any association with the male gender. It's Womine. At the Michigan Womines Music Festival, I was so far from the fringes and the fray that I found something amazing and wonderful. I discovered what people call pride, I walked around and saw wild, crazy things. <laughs> a 300-pound lesbian in nothing but a loincloth. And she looked hot. <laughs> Topless 20-somethings in tutus, about a dozen of them walked through the lunch line, and no one blinked. No one had anything to hide here. No one chose to hide anything. It was all on display and celebrated in a safe community-building way. And this changed me. I was along for the ride. There were crazy, late-night, round-of-fire, drum-circle-meets-truth-or-dare son of stuff. There was a kissing workshop that led into marathon makeout sessions with hot women I'd never known. I could not believe that this was real life. So eventually Sunday came, and we had to pack up our temporary home and go back to the city. My pal Carolyn had a new girlfriend already, who was also from Chicago. They had met at a basketball game. Everyone they knew was very tall. They'd invited me over to their camp one night, and I remember being the very shortest person there. I stood up so straight all night. We drove back to Chicago, revealing to each other all of the stories of our strange and hilarious exploits. Carolyn said, perfect, now you can begin your trashy whore phase. It's absolutely necessary. 
I wasn't so sure about that, but I felt a glow. And it wasn't just the vibe of sex and empowerment. It really was the pride. I wasn't afraid of who I was anymore. I wanted to be myself. But what would I do going back to the office? Hmm. Once home, my housemates, a vegan anarchist phone sex worker and a DePaul undergrad, respectively, <clears throat> I walked into the house and Tiffany, the undergrad, exclaimed, Oh my God, hickeys! Oh, girl, you must have had some fun with those lesbians. I did. I laughed. Shit. Hickeys. In my early to mid-twenties, I didn't know how to handle such things. A quick education of cover-up makeup demonstrated that there would be no covering it up. So I went for a scarf. The scarf would have to do. But the scarf would shift and show my secret. I had to keep it under wraps for just a little while longer. I didn't want to stink at work with all the fancy North Shore ladies. I'd made the commitment to come out, but I wanted to do so on my own time, on my own terms. So double stick tape, a scarf, and that should do it. A big, flouncy, fancy scarf in the middle of August. Not suspicious at all. So I went to work the next day with a bounce in my step and my fancy flousy scarf, a reminder of the fun that I'd had. I told my BFF at work the whole story over a too long lunch. She was getting twitchy once we'd missed the hour that we were supposed to return, but my newfound joie de vivre could not be stopped. Back at the office, I tackled my to-dos with new vigor. I even skipped the morning water cooler conversation. I am about so much more than this cubicle now. I remember I felt like I'd finally received a lifetime of wishes, and I was finally real. Well, what was really real was the gossip that exploded around me. Having only told one person at work, I was surprised when everyone I encountered seemed to have a sideways smile and leering eyes when they said, so how was that women's music thing that you went to? It had a funny effect, being gossiped about. In my past, I'd always shrunken away when I knew that others had been talking smack about me. Like in high school, when people told stories about my best friend and I being satanic lesbians. It drove my best friend to becoming a born-again Christian. It only drove me to wonder, what did I do wrong? This flurry of gossip, it was so curious. How could this thing that I discovered that was an integral part of who I am could be used against me? One executive came into my office and awkwardly stumbled over inviting me to the diversity community. She kept fiddling with her pearl buttons of her sweater while telling me, we need to reach out to the gay and lesbian community. Uh, maybe you would come visit sometime on a Wednesday at 3? It was the sheer fact that everyone under the sun could tell that I got laid. Some of them even had an obvious sigh of, finally, after they'd say, you look like you had a great vacation. It wasn't long after that I started caring about my life more than my job. 
that I left the agency. I orchestrated myself as the first of a handful of post 9-11 layoffs and got into grad school. My life had taken the turn that I needed to become who I wanted to be. But it taught me a really interesting lesson, and that is that gossip is a strange thing. It has no power if you don't care about it. But having been gossiped about, I always thought it meant something, something terrible about me. Oddly enough, this taught me that it just meant there was something much more interesting going on in my cubicle. Thank you. In the next story, Jordan Anderson tells of the educational experiences he's gotten from working in the wedding industry. So we're talking about jobs today. You know, we're talking about work, industry. And you know, all these stories are anecdotes from the trenches. But more than just making us smile or think or feel... There's a lot to be learned in all of these. I've always found the greatest lessons to come from experience, or at least the lessons that seem to stick the most with me, happen to come from experience, unfortunately. And when it comes to having educational experiences, I've learned most from my time working in the wedding industry. I found that the water cooler for me is that water bottle hastily purchased at the gas station consumed on the way to the weddings I'm going to work. Now, any job in the service industry will teach you far more about humanity than you'd probably care to learn, as many of the stories tonight have told us. But there's something about the spectacle of weddings kind of brings these kinds of lessons to an almost cartoonishly absurd climax. For a number of years, I've owned a mobile DJ company. We serve private parties, other assorted events, but mostly weddings. They're kind of the bread and butter of any event-based company in our vacation paradise known as Grand Traverse area. And, you know, it's funny, this business kind of gives me an incredibly unearned sense of superiority regarding my observational skills. And I can't speak for how obvious it is for the rest of the guests who know these people, but as an outside observer, somebody parachuted into these intimate moments, I feel like, emphasis on feel like, I have a unique perspective, devoid of baggage, on whether or not I can judge that these two people should be married and that it's going to last. (laughs) What's fantastic about this is that because of the nature of not doing any, you know, follow-up surveys or such, I'm never confronted with the reality of my abilities, nor do I have any desire to be. I just feel great about myself, and I don't want that to change. (laughs) But that actually brings me to a larger issue that I think we can all learn, and is all important, is that what this all comes down to is awareness. As human beings one of the biggest things that we grapple with is a lack of awareness. And, you know, some are better than others, but we can get so wrapped up in ourselves and what we want, what we desire, that we can lose sight of how our actions are affecting others. And in no greater place is this apparent than when somebody is getting married. Now, 
a few examples, and names have been changed to protect the innocent, as well as my career and my livelihood. So one bride, let's just call her Cindy. Cindy was insistent on a real fairy tale entrance, one where she and her true love would arrive at the reception by descending a staircase to greet her devoted onlookers. And so married to this idea was she that nothing could dissuade her from this. Absolutely nothing. Not a person running the venue, not any of her friends, not even her husband-to-be breaking his leg a week before the proceedings. (laughs) Can I remind you, she still wanted to descend a staircase with her husband with a cast up to here and the sweat and fear in his eyes of somebody about to be taken out back blindfolded and have a cigarette stuffed into his mouth awaiting the fire of the gun. Now, she arrived and um, initially oblivious to her husband's predicament, which to me I'm still trying to figure out, why this wouldn't work, she was finally talked down from the ledge of this fairy tale of terrible ideas to form the bizarre compromise of, well, why don't you just have everybody that's currently waiting outside sitting there who saw us arrive, let's let all these normal people with a shred of common sense say, well, come into this place and see us all standing on this staircase where we will then wave at them and then they'll go back outside. And it raised an issue for me then of going, why is this happening? As your husband is saying, I can't even get up one step as the sweat and angst and thought of what exactly have I gotten myself into in perpetuity dawned on him. But lack of awareness isn't just left for those lost in the fog of newly christened marital bliss. You know, bridezillas and groomzillas get the brunt of these stories, and amongst wedding vendors, that's, there's just as much to learn from observing the guests as there is from those that invited them to these proceedings. There's one recently where there was a charming young lady that most everyone else could not quite figure out how she made her way to this party. A few people said, oh, I think she knows uh, so-and-so, or um, yeah, they're the date of, and then, honestly, I have no idea. But she drew my focus when she started, as I was was working, and I have a nice little booth and fairly nice equipment in which to make the sound come out of the speakers. She started waving her drink over my console, and um, in front of my booth has the logo of my company, which is a smiling face with a hat of records. And she started grinding against the smiley face with a hat of records after she had been hitting on me slightly and wondering, do you think this is a real person? I know that it's smiling, but that is not real. Nobody quite paid attention to my looks of desperation of, can somebody please help me? It was more greeted with, am I right? I'm like, no, you're not. Help me. But she was not quite paying attention to where she was, what she were doing. There seemed to be a lack of awareness about how her actions, like Cindy, I spoke of earlier, was affecting her. So this girl we'll call Cindy number two, 
Cindy began, the first thing that she said to me, and I'd like to preface this by saying I was rather thrown off by the what seemed to be forwardness, uh, not only of this statement, but also of that there was only one way to take this. She looks to me in the eye, well, when she could focus that much, and said, fill me up. And I said, excuse me, what? And she repeated that again, and I said, no, no, no. Excuse me, uh, what? Just hoping that if I kept asking her, it would get less awkward for me. (laughs) And finally she said, fill me up with whatever you got. And then thrust her glass back at me. And it was then that I realized she thought I was the bartender. (laughs) Even though I was certain that of all the people at that wedding, this girl knew where the bar was. (laughs) And so I told Cindy number two, told her at length, no, 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 that's over there. And then she got into a fight with me about why I would not serve her anything, despite the fact that I kept saying, no, that, you know that thing that you had your ear pressed to and screaming into for about 30 minutes before you talked to me? That's the speaker that I'm making sound come out of. At this point, one of her friends came over to join her, and uh, after the, oh my God, it's so good to see you. She then um, said, oh my God, we should do shots, and turned to me and said, we would like two lemon drops, please. Again, Cindy too, I am not the bartender. I can't give you anything, and another fight proceeded. So it's a number of scenarios like this in my line of work where I've learned that whether you're drunk on two lemon drops or just the emotion of having said, I do, A little focus and awareness goes a long way for yourself, for the people around you, and for the poor schlub that is forced to be working. Thank you. Can you blow this frog off my head? In our next story, Crystal Frost says that being a portrait studio photographer taught her a bunch of neat tricks for getting kids to smile. So we're talking about jobs. I've had a bajillion jobs in my life, seriously. I actually worked at competing pizza places at the same time during the same summer. That happened for real. And our biggest client was Interlochen Arts Academy. And people would get confused because I'm the same delivery girl. Every time, they're like, did I order from Cicero's or Papa Express? I don't remember, but that, that's my pizza story. <laughs> Hand-tossed dough, people. I, I uh, spent a number of years working as a photographer. I'm going to rephrase that. Years ago, I worked as a portrait studio photographer. <laughs> That's a little better. I was living in East Tennessee at the time, and I was in need of a job. I had no previous experience working in photography. I had no previous experience with children. I had no previous experience in retail, and they said, you're hired. (laughs) I literally walked into Photography by JCPenney, 
And I was hired on the spot without an interview. And uh, so I spent a few months in this Tennessee portrait studio with this laid-back southern crowd. I, uh, I did not gain an accent in my tenure in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, although I did answer the phone with an accent every time I picked up the phone to the Photography by JCPenney studio, I said it like this. Photography by JCPenney, this is Crystal, can I schedule you an appointment? I could be talking about the most depressing situation ever. I could be literally in the middle of telling a coworker, yeah, so Jimmy doesn't have very long to live. Bring, bring, photography by JCPenney, this is Crystal, can I schedule you an appointment? So I worked there from May until August. And it was very southern and very laid back, and pretty easy, actually, uh, taking pictures of kids in weird poses, like, like there just happens to be a wicker chair right there. And that child just happens to want to lean up against that wicker chair just like this, and then they smile, and it's beautiful. I did that. So then I decided to come back to Michigan, because we all do. And I came right back here to uh, Traverse City. <laughs> and I decided to take these newly honed skills, because I'm a photographer now. Even though I didn't know anything about photography, you don't have to know anything about photography. You really don't. You just have to know how to use a remote control. And that's pretty much it. I didn't know anything, but I walked into Sears Portrait Studio at the Cherryland Center with a lot of ego. And I said, I would like a job. And my boss hired me on the spot again. <laughs> well, of course, come on in. It's September. We need you. I should have known that things get a little ugly from September until December in the portrait studio world. First and foremost, you have to understand that the pinnacle of the portrait studio predated the digital camera. Like now we all have digital cameras and we do selfies and we have these wonderful things called apps um, that make you all look really good, right? But the, uh, the portrait studio was this, this haven for parents for creating these memorable moments for their little ones. And, uh, and we lured them in with these packages, $9.99, and you get 52 pictures of your little pride and joy. It's a scam. We'll get to that. If you didn't take your kids in every month to get these portraits taken, you hated your child. That's pretty much it. Uh, and, and we said things like this. And if you didn't get that wonderful picture with the fake angel wings, and the, like you have your son wearing a feather boa, I don't know why, but that was a thing. Uh, you hated your child. You needed all of those things. So this job that I had involved three things, obviously children, 
a lacking of sanity and coupons. <laughs> and you had certain skills, but none of them included photography, <laughs> really. First of all, you had to be a really good liar because your baby is beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful baby. And children were not naughty, ever. Children were never naughty. They were precocious. They were curious. Never naughty. In reality, most children are assholes. <laughs> Especially when you're making them sit on this weird box that has this weird, like, Jackie Treehorn carpet on top of it. And you're sitting, sitting there, and you're making them sit there, and there's this bizarre, like, weird cloud background, and you're somebody they've never met. Yeah, I would kind of be an asshole, too. I'm understanding that now, but your baby is beautiful. You have to tolerate children. You don't have to like children, but you have to tolerate children. And you have to know that I do like children. I do. And I have patience. I do. But the other form of tolerance that comes with working in Sears Portrait Studio is the tolerance for alcohol. <laughs> you get some tolerance after 10 hours taking pictures of babies with their mothers who say, well, he smiles at home. Your child is three weeks old. He does not smile. He has gas. And we're not waiting until your child has gas to take the picture. But you do have to be a little insane, and here's why. I'm going to paint the picture for you. It's a Saturday in late November. There's a lobby full of screaming children. They're wearing crushed velvet and bow ties. There are mothers who are insisting upon straightening that one out-of-place hair by spitting onto their hand and rubbing their spit hand on their child and wondering why that child's going, no, no, in my crushed velvet and bow tie. There are fathers who are dressed like their nine-month-old sons. <laughs> I want to say that again. There are fathers who are dressed like their nine-month-old sons in reindeer sweaters. And these fathers, they just, they just tend to just look upon the exit sign. And they have this look of just desperation in their eyes. It's unattainable, this exit sign. They're stuck in the Sears Portrait Studio in the lobby looking at the exit sign. And when one father walks in with his, his group, and the other father sees them, I noticed this immediately. They have this little silent nod for each other. And I can only imagine it's kind of similar to somebody who's been in war. You know, so you just kind of go, yeah. Yeah, I see you. It's acknowledgement of pain and discomfort. The television, there was always a television in the lobby, too, and it was blaring, like, Blue's Clues. Remember Blue's Clues? Is that still a thing? Yeah? Okay. Well, it was Blue's Clues or 
bear in the big blue house or something with Bob the Builder. There were lots of things going on, and it was supposed to entertain the children. But how can you entertain children who are at the Cherryland Center on a Saturday, extremely hot in their crushed velvet and their bow ties, with their fathers who clearly hate their lives and their mothers spitting on their heads? That's not going to entertain them at all. And the noises... The noises were deafening. I would walk out of a session because that's what you call it when you're in the portrait studio world. It's a session. And you would walk out of the session to grab a new session and you would hear it. And it was just, we are gonna play Blue's Clues. We are gonna play Blue's Clues, crying babies, mothers saying, just stop it, just knock it off. Don't you just want me to have this picture? And they're yelling at their husbands. That happened. Unbelievable. But you would take these, these families back into the studio for the sessions, and as they walked in, you would see this uh, plethora of props and toys, and then the, the camera, which was a stationary camera that went up and down and side to side because you had a remote control. It was like a video game. And you would see the box I talked to you about earlier, the box that was usually covered in some sort of weird rug, who knows. And you would see the lighting. Again, we're not real photographers. We have no control over any of this. The lighting is stationary, and you'd look for that one X. That's where you put the baby. That's where you put the family. And if it was... A couple, you would raise the box up, put that weird white carpet over it, and then all of a sudden the couple is just leaning against the box, (laughs) staring into the camera. They're so happy. Click. That's very interesting stuff. You definitely followed a particular schedule because you're not allowed to be creative when it comes to the corporate office. Never go off the schedule. You had two vinyl or traditional backgrounds, two muslin curtain fun backgrounds, right? You know, like, hey, everybody lay down because that's not a weird family picture. <laughs> what was that about? Like, let's just, ha- let's just put the baby on mom's back right here. That looks awesome. And you had two fun backgrounds, which could be anything from Bear in the Big Blue House to those weird sky things. Who knows what was happening? And you were encouraged to use props. Corporate actually kept track of how many times you used props. You had to throw an Easter egg in there or a pumpkin or those, those sunflower things, whatever, or put the baby in the bathtub. Everybody's going to believe that. But even with this entirely automated system, you had to be able to make the children smile. And that's where the insanity comes in, because at this point, it's your job to do anything, anything to make that child smile. There were fellow photographers who would actually hurt themselves (laughs) if it worked. It happened. At one point, a child laughed when you tripped, so you were tripping everywhere and trying to use your remote control camera to capture the smile. You had to do anything to make that kid smile, and usually you're on your knees. Like, at least for me, I was on my knees, mostly begging the child to smile. But really, you're trying to get to their level, so you're down there and you're doing weird things, 
and it was just plain wrong, and that is why I've brought a prop tonight. <laughs> because I mastered this art of making children smile, and I'm going to show it to you tonight. blow that frog off my head? Can you blow that frog off my head? Can you blow that frog off my head? And this is the point where the child is supposed to go, and when that happens, you go, and then they're supposed to go, and you go, click. I'm not proud of it, but it worked, and I needed the money. <laughs> you would think that after all of this humiliation, you're on your knees, you're asking children to blow things off your head, <laughs> you're taking pictures. You would think that after this, that corporate would say, okay, enough is enough. You did your job, soldier. It's time to go on. No. Now it was time to take the same family back to the sales station. And that's when you got to sell them all of these precious memories of their child. You became the seller of guilt at this point because they're all there wielding their $9.99 packages, which is a scam. And you say, well, I don't... I guess you didn't read the fine print. The package is always the first picture. It's always the first picture. The first picture is always sucky, too, because they tell you to make it sucky. So you have to lie and say, this is your package. You get 52 pictures of this. <laughs> and it's Jimmy, and he's got this weird thing on his face, and you can see the bottom of his shoe, and that's just how it is. But for $25 per sheet, you can have this picture. And I think you want to have this picture, don't you? And this is the part where you start to hate your life and think you're a terrible person because you are. <laughs> In reality, you can make any, any of those pictures the package. It, you, you just delete. <laughs> it's not rocket science but it's the portrait parent trap. So all of the good parents had to have the cutest picture. So they walked in there thinking they're going to pay the $10 plus the $10 per child session fee uh, plus the studio time fee, which is also not in the fine print, or it is in the fine print, but who reads that? So you're, you're thinking you're going to pay $10. In actuality, you're going to pay about $40, and then you're actually going to try to get a picture that's nice. So you walk out of there with $150 spent on these really not very good portraits. And I started to feel like a piece of shit every single day taking pictures of these children that didn't want to be there, witnessing this, you know, probably precursor to domestic violence in the lobby, and also upselling these people and scamming them, and I hated it. I hated everything about it. So I decided that I needed to get out of it, absolutely get out of it, and, uh, and, that, and I did. And it was, it was fantastic for, for a while. I left. I left the khakis. You had to wear khakis, first of all. 
everybody, I, we're photographers, <laughs> and we had to wear khakis and blue shirts, so I left that behind, and I left the poses, and the staring off into the distance, and the X-light, and the, can you blow this frog off my head? <laughs> and I never looked back, I didn't look back, until I, I, I realized a couple of years ago that that portrait studio had closed. And it was weird for me for a minute because it seemed that the digital killed the portrait studio star <laughs> because it did. Because now we all have Instagram and we all have good cameras and we don't need the Sears portrait studio shenanigans. But I did feel a little sad because, um, you know, gone were those days of the ugly props and the fake smiles and the column. <laughs> the column <laughs> and the fake ivy, which I still have. I stole some of that fake ivy. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and the parents that were bribing their children and the fathers contemplating their life decisions in the lobby of scam. But technology, as it seems to do so often, once again succeeded in ending an era. And the end of that era all that is left for me is that package of cheap memories. Thank you. In the last story of this show, I illustrate how much fun it can be to watch the madness unfold as outside consultants work their magic on a company. I suppose when you work in a downtown high-rise, a bird crashing into your window just becomes part of the average work week, and at some point it no longer startles you. But what do you do when it happens when you're in the middle of being interviewed for a job? <laughs> I'm already terrible at interviewing. The only reason I ever get the job is because of my razzly-dazzly editing test. I'm very good at what I do but I'm not very good at answering questions that I find dumb when the stakes are high. <laughs> at one of my first post-college interviews in my early 20s, I was asked the dreaded, so, Karen, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I didn't know. Who actually ever has an answer to that question? So I said the first thing that came to mind, I'm gonna marry my boyfriend. <laughs> Fantastic. You're going to go far in this company, Curly Q. <laughs> but good people gathered tonight at Inside Out, you should know I did actually get that job because apparently matrimony as a career ambition really did play well in the early 1990s at associations that were 98% women. <laughs> so about 15 years later, and in case you're curious, 14 years after I broke the engagement to that boyfriend, um, when, after I'd had a few unfulfilling jobs and my excitement about being part of the workforce was far more tempered, I was asked in an interview, so, Karen, how do you feel about working independently? Oh, I have no problem with that. So long as you make clear which projects are priorities, I don't need a boss lording over me all day. Fantastic. Hey. Good people gathered tonight at Inside Out. I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs>
So when this bird crashed into the middle of my interview on the 29th floor, I was at first kind of stunned that she, the maybe boss's boss, just kind of glanced over about as distressed as one would be when the wind blows, shrugged, and went back to asking me super awesome questions. And I tried my best to stay with her while my heart rate and breathing slowly righted themselves to normal. But then all of a sudden, I had this troubling thought playing on repeat. Oh my God, was that a sign? Is that me? Am I the bird? (laughs) But isn't that pretty much how jobs go? You're swooping and soaring on what feels like a limitless, unstoppable path until all of a sudden you have smashed into the side of a barrier you did not see coming. And then you think back to that day when you got that phone call and you said, oh yes, thank you for this exciting opportunity. I'm so excited to be part of this exciting organization. And my God, you wish you had just said, thanks, no thanks. I've had jobs where that moment came within an hour of the first day on the job. When I was summer jobbing at 20 years old, I quite actually quit at quitting time on my very first day at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. (laughs) I had spent hours ringing a cowbell to let people know the salmon pink cart was open for business, had to listen to jokesters in suits telling me at least 100 times, well, I can believe it's yogurt. almost getting arrested by the park police because, it turns out, I did not have a permit to sell yogurt at the beach, (laughs) and getting relocated to a remote park where fifth graders made fun of my hat. (laughs) But of all the jobs I've had, there is one in particular that if I could go back in time and manipulate the day of the interview, I would pay a bird to crash into that interview and warn me away. I accepted the job at this association, not knowing at the time that I was hired that consultants were in the midst, and they were working their magic to reinvent the organization in only that way consultants can do. Now, those who have worked at associations know that for very many people, saying, I accept this job, is almost the same thing as, with great pleasure, shall I step into this quicksand? Associations overflow with employees sporting hairdos and wardrobes that were fashionable 20 years ago, and they all have a perverse affinity for the way things have always been done for the past 20 years. And then you bring in consultants, those harbingers of doom, and it changes everything. The grumblings around the office made it a miserable place to be every time I opened the door to my office. But these weren't grumblings without a cause, mind you. I mean, sure, consultants typically are known as those who just come in and string together nonsense words that say nothing but sound zazzy, and they stall progress while leaving a few staff casualties in their wake while they decide whose jobs are extraneous. But with the consultants at this job, it was utter chaos. They quickly fired several long-term employees for suspicion of the possibility that maybe, just maybe, one day down the line, perhaps they might resist change. We were required to sign loyalty oaths. When supervisors and staff completed 360 evaluations, they were deemed too positive, and we were all sent to a room, a proctored room, to redo them until they determined that we were sufficiently criticizing one another. 
After each all-staff meeting to update us on new processes, the CEO would put on comically oversized sunglasses and say, the future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. Yes. <laughs> and then she would grin at the room while we were expected to wildly cheer for her. And the fact that this line is from a song about nuclear war apparently was completely lost on the entire room. <laughs> then again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's why they were cheering so wildly. Woo! I'm faking company pride for a paycheck. Kill me now, please. <laughs> but I stuck with it. I loved the work I was doing. I felt like I was learning a lot. I kept my distance from the crazy. I just looked at it as entertainment to get me through the workday. But then an ethics policy was introduced with a skit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, here's the thing. Because of the grumblings and firings and alleged death threats against the CEO, ethics became the most contentious issue of all. And so it was delivered individually to each department by a staff committee. And when our small group walked into the conference room, we were immediately greeted with this disclaimer. We are not the ethics police. We are not here to monitor your behavior or to bust you for behaving unethically. We just want you to understand the very real situations that can arise in the workplace where ethics might be involved. So, imagine curtain goes up to scene one, act one. Cynthia, a pasty suburban middle-aged woman in an ill-fitting polyester pantsuit is warm for Horace's form. It was well past the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas congressional hearings, but apparently not everybody learned the hard lessons just yet. So, Cynthia communicates her uncontrollable hard-on for Horace like this. Ah, sugar, why don't you come up and see me sometime? I imagine the script was explicitly written that way, to make us all horrified, just to imagine that there might come a day where we would all be so dead on the inside that that exchange might actually seem kind of hot. <laughs> because then Charles scared the shit out of us by jumping out from under the conference room table. He was wearing a crossing guard stash, sash, stuck out a stiff arm and yelled, Halt! You are in violation of this company's ethics policy. Because, wait, what? They're not the police? I'm confused. <laughs> Cynthia's attempts to rationalize away sexual harassment got her nowhere, however, and she was banished to the ethics overhaul room. <laughs> when Charles opened the door to the ethics overhaul room, which really was just a closet in the conference room, we could see that there were several Ernie dolls. Yes, Ernie, as in Bert and Ernie, yeah. sitting on each shelf. We were told that they represented other violators who had committed unspecified crimes against ethics, and they were sentenced to sit in the dark and think about what they had done. <laughs> Cynthia stepped into the closet, and they shut the door on her and all the other prisoners, all in matching stripy shirts. And 
At that moment, we graduated from surreal to schedule one hallucinogenic surreal. And all I could do was pick up my pen and start filling in all the A's and the O's and the eights and the letterhead on my notepad because I knew that if my eyes met those of any of my work colleagues, any of my department colleagues, I would have either laughed myself to tears, cried myself to laughter, or said out loud, what the fuck? <laughs> At the end of all the skits, we were given the opportunity to ask questions. My hand shot straight up. I asked about the ethics behind the recent decision to post on all the communal area bulletin boards that a longtime employee had recently been fired for unethical behavior, considering that HR information is supposed to be confidential. Ethics. Cynthia looked at me sharply. She got what she deserved. I started to ask a follow-up question about the ethics of that response, <laughs> and I was cut off. She got what she deserved. I think she singed my eyebrows a little bit on that second one. So I started updating my resume that night. <laughs> Within months and after putting in less than a year, I was already working somewhere else. Soon after I left, I heard that mandatory staff bonding activities at a retreat had included changing the lyrics to popular songs to sing ad songs of admiration for the CEO. And I'm sorry I missed that. <laughs> One of my friends was actually mad at me when she found out that I quit because she knew that I would never have stories like this again. And you know what? Now that I'm self-employed, she's mostly right. And people often comment to me that now I'm living the life because I work from home. And it's okay, I'm not gonna lie, a pants optional environment is delightful. <laughs> Ooh, there's a lot of self-employed people here. <laughs> um, and I've even been known to break through writer's block while about to get in the shower, and next thing I know it's an hour later and I realize, holy shit, I've been sitting here naked the whole time. You know, this is the kind of thing that doesn't fly when you work in a cubicle village. But it's very quiet, and it can get lonely. And if I can't find the words I want to write, I'll ask my dog to listen to my opinion, but to, to listen to my ideas, but his opinion is always, rub my belly. <laughs> it's hard to find motivation when it's warm out, or if the Cubs have a day game, or if the Tigers have a day game, or if I absolutely have to go to Meyer and buy cheese before I will sit down and write one word. No one's making sure I get my work done. And there are moments where I realize I've promised three separate clients, three separate projects, all within a day of each other, and next thing I know, I am just weeks upon weeks of nonstop. So here's this. When the Kool-Aid flavor tastes like capitulation with subtle undertones of crushed soul, it's hard to drink it. But we always get up early in the morning and get on the subway to crazy town because we've got to pretend to choke down the Kool-Aid, we've got to eat, we've got to pay our bills, we've got to buy stuff and stuff and more fucking stuff. Even after a little bird told me, okay, well, banged on the window, really, don't do it. I still took that other job. I showed up for five years, drunk on my paycheck and basically wearing seriously fugly pants every damn day to let the world know I give up. 
You know, it ultimately took some pretty devastating occurrences to shake me into seeing what had been in front of me all along. Life is both way too short and way too long to hate, dread, and regret nearly 100,000 hours of it. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.